Amen, Lord. We, you are truly everlasting, our faithful God, our Redeemer. And we praise you for our salvation. We praise you for your faithfulness to your word, to your own promises that you make, the covenants that you have made to, uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yeah, as well as especially the new covenant. We thank you, Father, for the fulfillment of your promises that are all bound up in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that even as we open up this passage that uh, uh, is maybe uh, unfamiliar words, unfamiliar places, uh, unfamiliar names, that your Spirit would fill us and, and teach us and help us to see uh, that which you would wish us to understand from this passage and cause us to grow in our, in our love for you, to understand even that, uh, that, that you are involved in all the details of bringing about the fulfillment of your promises. And Lord, we can trust in you because you're in control of the details, in control of our lives. We, we thank you, Father, for the encouragement that we can receive this morning and pray that, that we would respond to it uh, with uh, humble hearts, with uh, uh, trusting hearts that, uh, that, tr- that grow in our faith and trust in you more. These things we pray, Father, for the building up of your church and the glory of your kingdom, glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me again to the book of Numbers this morning, Numbers uh, Numbers 34 is where we'll be today, Numbers 34. It's uh, really encouraging to look out into the audience in this 8 a.m. service and see so many of you here, to tell you the truth. It seems like there's more and more people coming to this service than second service, so uh, just uh, that's wonderful. I hope that uh, uh, you are blessed by the worship here this morning, and uh, we, we're here because of, I hope that you understand, uh, we're here because of the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, yesterday I had a chance to officiate a funeral. And uh, even in many things that we could say at a funeral that would be appropriate, um, but the most important thing that we might say at a funeral, especially as a pastor officiating a funeral, is, is the gospel. It's the hope that we have of life after this life here on earth is over, life eternal, life that is free from the curse of sin, and that life is found, of course, in Jesus Christ. And we know that, and hopefully you know, that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you put your faith and trust in him and his death and resurrection on your behalf, that you have the hope of eternal life. You have the confidence that your sins are forgiven and that God will no longer hold it against you. And that when you die and you face stand before him in the judgment, that you will be able to answer, it's, Lord I am a guilty sinner, and I do deserve to die, but I put my trust in your son, in your son alone, his death on my behalf, in his resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. And, uh, and I hope that you will, and because of that both confession, that uh, God examines our hearts, knows that by faith... Uh, you have trusted in Jesus and that he would ent- allow you to enter into his kingdom. But how, I ask you today, as we think about the gospel and the, the promise of eternal life, the promise of salvation, how can you or how can I, how can we trust God to keep his promise of eternal life? What assurance do you have that God keeps his word? How would you answer that question? There's, you probably share the same message to an unbeliever. An unbeliever is going to come and ask you, well, 
How do you know that's going? That's true. What assurance can you give me? Well, you could. You can't uh, have you. You can't really go wrong if you appeal to the Bible, for the Bible reveals. You might say that God is true, and that God has spoken to us in His Word, and therefore all that He has spoken in His Word is true, and that He tells us. That if he tells us he's going to keep this promise because we believe in him, then we, we can depend upon that. We can have assurance of that because this is God's word. So the Bible is really a system of truth. The Bible makes claims about our world. And it's as, a, as a system of truth, of that which is true, you, we can compare it with reality. We can compare it with the world and look at the world and say, does this match with the world? And with what we observe, not just in our world presently, but in the world in the past, as well as as we eventually the world in the future, God's word will describe this world truly, correctly, because, well, he is the creator of this world. And I hope that you'll find that to be true. But most of all, the Bible reveals truths, we call them promises, that God fulfills with respect to the Messiah, to his son, to Jesus Christ. We find them all over the Old Testament, and we find them fulfilled all over the New Testament. So when we read our Bibles and we see all these fulfilled promises, many regarding particularly his son, it is further confirmation, further assurance to us that our faith in, his, in what he has revealed in his word is a true faith. It's faith in that which is true because is consistent with the world that we live in. And then we can count, we can, and when we, as we read the Bible and, and are assured by the, the fulfillment of his promises, we too in our, are strengthened in our faith that God is trustworthy. God is faithful. God is dependable. God can be counted upon to keep his promise of eternal life for everyone who believes. The fact that God promises the land of Canaan to Israel and that he keeps his promise to give them the land of Canaan is one of many encouragements in the scripture that God is faithful to his promises. This one pro- and this is the focus of our morning's uh, passage, the promise of the land of Canaan. And as it encourages, as we examine this passage, we're going to be encouraged that it will strengthen our faith in God's promise to us of eternal life with him in his kingdom. As you can tell, from number, we're in Numbers 34. It's nearly the end of the book. Um, continue to pray for me as we end these, these chapters. These are uh, difficult chapters to preach. Okay? Uh, yeah, amen. <laughs> Even the keyboard knows. Uh, <laughs> They are challenging passages. Uh, when we read these in our devotions, we're like, wow, what is this passage about? And so um, hopefully, we hopefully will hear correctly by the Spirit of God that which this passage intends for us. As we've looked in our first 33 chapters, we have seen Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And they've wandered for 40 years, and they have come to their final stop there in the plains of Moab, opposite Jericho, across the Jordan River. The second generation has been numbered for war. They're going to go into the promised land. They've been prepared and instructed for war. In fact, in the previous chapter, Moses recapped their journey, kind of summarized the whole journey for them, all the journey from Egypt all the way to the promised land. And at the very end of the chapter, of the previous chapter, Israel there was instructed that when they cross into the land of Canaan, they are to drive out all the inhabitants of the land, and they are to take possession of the land. For verse 53, God says, I have given the land for you to possess it. God had promised to give this land to the people of Israel, for them to have as a possession We'll see the significance of that in a little bit. 
And so in this 34th chapter of Numbers, God gives further instructions regarding this promised land of Canaan. He gives them more uh, details, instructions regarding the land that they are to possess. And then we're going to simply divide it. It divides pretty evenly, uh, well, obviously, clearly, to, into two aspects of this land. He gives an instruction about two aspects of the land of Canaan that encourage God's people then and encourage God's people now to trust in his faithfulness to lead them to the promised land. Not, and that promised land not for us is, is not Israel. It's not the nation of Israel today. Uh, you're welcome to always go there if you'd like to go check it out. But our promised land is in heaven with our God and Father and with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So two aspects, two aspects of the passage. Let's, let's take a look then at this passage. The Spirit of God would teach us. First of all, as we look at this land of Canaan that, um, <clears throat> that God had promised to Israel, we see God giving instructions in verses 1 to 15 of the, regarding the borders of Canaan. The borders. God is, uh, God is involved in when he just doesn't say, I'm going to give you a land, and just nebulously say, I'm going to give you a land. He tells them exactly the, the borders of the land that they are going to possess. And we see these in verses 1 to 15. Let's read verses 1 to 2 first. Numbers 34, verse 1 to 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan, according to its borders. The Lord continues to speak here to Israel through Moses. And in verse 2, God particularly gives the specific instructions. He reminds Israel, reminds Israel through Moses, first of all, of the certainty of the promised land. The certainty of the promised land. He says, when you enter the land of Canaan, he does not say, if you enter the land, or perhaps when uh, you, you may enter the land. He says, when you enter the land of Canaan. For Almighty God has promised to lead them into the promised land. And so with God behind you, or with you, or for, actually God among them, in, as he dwells in the tabernacle, he speaks in words of certainty. When you enter the land of Canaan. Almighty God had, has promised to lead them into the promised land. And Almighty God will, lead, will keep his promise to lead them into the promised land. This promise is a certainty because it was made not just to the nation right now. It's not a first-time promise. It's a promise he had made over and over to their fathers. God had promised this, this land to their first forefather, Abraham, in Genesis 17.8. It's not the first time Genesis 17, but he promised to Abraham here. He says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God furthermore gives the not only gives it to Abraham, but he gives it to his son, Isaac. In Genesis 26, verse 3, God speaking to Isaac says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. So he's reiterating to Isaac, I'm going to give this land to you too. Don't leave this land. I know there's a famine land. Don't, don't be tempted to leave, but stay here, journey here, live here, dwell here, and I will give you this land. I will establish this oath that I made to Abraham and to you. And then God would reiterate the promise of the land again to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13, uh, Isaac's son. The Lord there says, and be and behold, the Lord, or we describe his description, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Uh, God had appeared to him in the dream, the, the, uh, Jacob's ladder dream there. He's at the top of the ladder. And that's, these are the words that he speaks to him. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm the, I, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham. I, I was, I am. He is the God of the, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he promised again to the land to his, him and his descendants. See, God consistently in the book of Genesis promises to give this land, a land, by the way, that 
really starts back in Genesis 12, if you remember, the Abrahamic covenant. We've talked about that many times. But it's a promise of a land, and he made this promise of land to Canaan, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And in every single passage, you'll notice that it adds to your descendants. It's to Abraham's descendants, to Isaac's descendants, to Jacob's descendants. And that includes the people of Israel here in Numbers 34. The second generation of wilderness Israelites. And by the way, if you're a Jewish background, that includes you. Today, God has promised the land of Israel to you, the land of Canaan. Now, so not only do we see the here of the certainty of the promised land, but verse 2 also reminds Israel of the perpetuity of the promised land. That's a tricky word. Perpetuity. Okay. The perpetuity of the promised land. That is, it's a, it's a land that you, they're never going to lose. It's an eternal uh, uh, promise to them. Consistently, God refers to the land as an inheritance. Sometimes the word is translated possession. See, the land was to be their inheritance, something that, they would, that Israel would possess and would pass down from one generation to the next. It was a, intended to be an eternal possession, internal inheritance. Uh, you and I, if we get something, inherit something, we could lose it. We can't guarantee that we're going to pass it on to our, our children. But God in, this, in, in, in the Bible, when he gives this possession, inheritance, it is meant to be, this land is meant to be passed on from one generation to the next. You could not lose this land. Even if you were such a terrible uh, um, a steward of the land and, and you, you lost it because you, 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 you wasted it on gambling or, or, or wild living, and you became so poor you had to kind of sell the land because of the year of Jubilee, that land would ultimately go back to you and to your family every 50 years. The land was an irrevocable gift given to them by God. Verse 2 lastly reminds Israel of the specificity, specificity of the promised land. You notice here that God promises them a very specific land. He doesn't promise them China or Russia or the United States of America, for instance. Besides, this country's land for you and me, right? Anyways, God promised Israel the land of Canaan. Sorry, I had to do that. I don't know why. Uh, God promised Israel the land of Canaan according to its borders. And so it's interesting, the, the description of the borders here is consistent with uh, even the borders describing the land of Canaan, because the land of Canaan was a known uh, region, uh, and it was found in Egyptian uh, archaeological records, and their, their description of the borders matches very consistently with the borders described here. So it's just kind of, this is in um, around the 15th century B.C., God details the borders of the land Canaan for Israel to possess in verses 3 through 12. And let's read verse 3 through 12. Just listen to these borders. And again, we, some of these places we're, we're familiar with, but many of them we just have no idea where they are. And scholars, uh, you, know, you know, they debate these things where some of these towns are. But we get the very, we'll get a very good sense, the gist of it, okay? I'm just going to throw up a map there just kind of for you to look. Of course, it's really tiny, but get an idea. Your southern sector shall extend from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom, and your southern border shall extend from the end of the Salt Sea eastward. Then your border shall turn direction from the south to the ascent of Akrabim and continue to Zin, and its termination shall be to the south of Kadesh Barnea, and it shall reach Hazaradar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn direction from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its termination shall be at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea, that is, its coastline. This shall be your west border, and this shall be your north border. You shall draw your border line from the great sea to Mount Hor. You shall draw a line from Mount Hor to Libo Hamath, and the termination of the border shall be at Zedad. And the border shall proceed to Ziphron, and its termination shall be at Hazar Enon. This shall be your north border. For your eastern border, you shall also draw a line from Hazar Enon to Shepham, and the border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain. 
and the border shall go down and reach the slope on the east side of the Sea of Kinnereth. And the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its termination shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land according to its borders all around. Israel, we see, is bordered by four sides, four sections. And many of these places, though unfamiliar to us, uh, <clears throat> but for Israel in the day, with, when they heard these descriptions, they would have likely known these specific locations. The southern border, um, the bottom of the, on the map in a sense, is marked along basically the following the wilderness of Zin. It includes, it goes from the Salt Sea, or the, which is also known as the Dead Sea, eastward, kind of goes south of Kadesh Barnea. Remember Kadesh Barnea, that fateful uh, moment there that Israel faced when they rebelled. Towards the brook of Egypt, there's a little a wadi there that's, that kind of eventually reaches to Egypt, all the way to the sea. The western border of, uh, of the map, as you see, is the, is the Great Sea, also known as, we call it the Mediterranean Sea. The northern border on the top uh, is something, it has the most locations that are kind of unknown today where, where they are exactly. But it heads, basically, it's just, it heads eastward from the sea. <coughs> to Mount Hor, a, a different from the Mount Hor that Aaron had died upon, to a place called Hazar Enon, Enon. and uh, then the eastern border that heads south from Hazar Enon down all the way down to the little east of the Sea of Kinnereth. Kinnereth is another name for the Sea of Galilee. That's uh, uh, let's see on the you probably can't see, but it's the Sea of Galilee, and then it goes down the Jordan, which is the Jordan River, right down there, and so essentially, and then all the way it reaches the Salt Sea, also known as the Dead Sea. And that's the eastern border. So God gives explicit the details of Canaan border. It's essentially the, the section that's, that's described here, essentially that green section, though there's a yellow section that's labeled Philistia that is, uh, you know, that is, that's there, but actually the border of Canaan would have included that section as well. So that green section is essentially, plus the yellow, is essentially the description that is described here. And it's interesting that though these borders are explicitly given here, these are the, the borders of the land that they, Israel was to possess. When we get to Joshua and he conquers the and they, he leads Israel in conquering the land, they they fail to fully obey all that God commanded them to do. They they don't completely uh, um, possess the full extent of this promised land. They leave some people. They leave particularly the Jebusites around in Jerusalem. And so many other people, so even some of the Philistine, Philistines that are there, they become a thorn in the side of these Israelites. But it's interesting. Even as we hear this description of the promised land and we know that Israel, for the most part, takes, possesses much of it, it seems to us when we look at the scriptures and and we read particularly in the earlier books of the Pentateuch that the promised land is even greater than what is mentioned here in Numbers 34. Numbers 34 is the most explicit description of the promised land. It is that because there's all these towns and, and locations. But in two other places, it seems to be that it is even greater than that. It's hinted, first of all, by the presence of the two and a half tribes dwelling across the Jordan River. And you see that on the map. You see those, uh, the, the different sections there with, um, the, with where it would be um, Gad and Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh where they dwell. Let's read, but it's alluded to in verse 13 to 15. So Moses commanded the sons of Israel saying, this is the land that you are to apportion by lot among you as a possession which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine and a half tribes. For the tribe of the sons of Reuben have received theirs according to their father's households, and the tribe of the sons of Gad according to their father's households, and the half tribe of Manasseh have received their possession. The two and a half tribes have received their possession across the Jordan opposite Jericho eastward toward the sun rising. And so we come to understand then that the land that's just, that was just described earlier in Numbers 34 was a description of the, uh, of the land that was going to be apportioned or divided among the remaining nine and a half tribes. 
the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of, half of Manasseh had already received their possession. Notice that word. They had already received their possession. Significantly, the word possession here is the same word that's translated inheritance earlier in the chapter. And so the use of this word implies that the land on the Transjordan is part of God's inheritance for the people of Israel. It is theirs to possess for, uh, as an eternal possession. And though the inheritance of the two and a half tribes are, are outside the description of what we find here in Numbers 34 of Canaan here, there are hints elsewhere that the promised land is even greater than what is delineated here in Genesis in Numbers 34. For instance, in Genesis 15, verse 18, we read this description. Again, this is God speaking to Abraham. He's a... Uh, it's that moment when they're, they're kind of ratifying the, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And so God says to him, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Scholars have debated about where that river of Egypt is, whether is that the Nile River or is that the little Wadi? It's a little closer to the, the Negev. But... Uh, but it's, you can't mistake the other part of the end, end of this promised land. It's all from the river Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates. The Euphrates is all the way there back in, well, it would be modern-day Syria today, I believe. But even as far as Iraq, uh, the Euphrates River runs. It runs through a couple of the countries there. And, uh, and that's, this is a huge swath of land. Not only that, but look at Exodus 23:31. God uh, reiterating uh, this to, um, to the Israelites. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. So again, you see this, this reference to the, to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is kind of easy Either, most likely, it's it's the, that uh, it's referring to the the two fingers of the of the at the top of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, it's referring to that part, to the Sea of the Philistines. That would be the the uh, Mediterranean Sea, and from there, include all the way from there to the River Euphrates again, all the way to to Syria, a, a Syria in modern day Syria and, and such. So it's a huge part land that is described. So how do we explain this discrepancy? What is it? Is, is the Numbers 34 uh, the, the promised land, or is Genesis 8, 15 to 23, uh, the description from, from Egypt to Euphrates is this promised land? How do we explain it? Well, most likely then, God here in Numbers 34 is giving a limited description of the promised land that Israel, he wanted Israel to possess at that time. It would be the extent of their possession or the, the, that they were to enter into the promised land and to possess for themselves, knowing that God, knowing that, eliminating it, he knows that they, because they would not be able to fully remove the enemy nations there or they would not be faithful to do so. And so he, and because of that, he knows that he's, this is enough for you guys. You, you, you're not going to be able to, to you know, take, handle more than this. So I'm going to limit it to this part right now. But God's plan from the beginning, from Genesis, from Exodus, is that Israel would be given a promised land that does reach from Egypt to the Euphrates, a wide land. And we learn that God does allow them to have a taste of this during the reign of King Solomon. It's in 1 Kings 4.21 that we read this. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates River, to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. In, the brief, in, in those brief years of Solomon's reign, Solomon had expanded the kingdom that David had built up, the unified kingdom that expanded all the way to the, to the near full extent of the promised land. God had faithfully kept his promise to give Israel the land to a T. 
So the promised land ultimately includes all this land from the river of Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. It's a larger than land that we normally think of when we think of Israel. It's not just the, the land of Canaan that Abraham wandered around. It, it, God graciously expands it to include much more. Even the land of the Transjordan, there were Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had, uh, were received as a possession and would go and expand further all the way to those, these ends as Solomon did. And so I know I was asked uh, that maybe you've wondered, did the two and a half tribes, were they, were they disobedient to God's instruction when they asked for the promised land across the Transjordan? And though it's not explicitly stated, I believe they didn't. I believe they didn't. I believe they, they asked for this of the Lord, and God describes it in terms of a possession, inheritance for them. It was, and in what's more, in light of Genesis and Exodus passages, uh, those, those part of the Transjordan actually belong and fit in the, the greater promised land that God had for Israel. But if you go look on a map today of Israel, and I should have thrown a map up for you, of modern day Israel, Israel does not even come close to possessing the full promised land, much less just the, even the land of Canaan as described here. Does that mean that God has failed to keep his promise? No, of course not. God is not slow about his promises. He gave them the land to its full extent, even in Solomon's day, but they did not, were not able to keep it because the kingdom was divided. They, they, were, they didn't continue to trust God, didn't continue to worship God, and so God caused them uh, to be sent away to exile. But we believe that one day God is going to keep his promise because he promises an eternal possession. So if they don't have possession of it now, we can count and depend upon that God is one day going to give them the land as a possession forever. And we believe that will be when Jesus returns. When their king returns to reign on the earth during his millennial kingdom, that is when Israel is going to fully possess the inheritance of the promised land made to their forefathers. And from that point on, never to be lost again. And so we see these details, this detail of the borders of Canaan. Hopefully we see that God has made these promises and they're all connected with other promises that he's made. They're really affirming the same promise of the covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant that will one day be completely fulfilled. But in addition to the borders of Canaan, God gives other instructions that increase our faith in his, our trust in his faithfulness to fulfill his promises to us, especially the promise of salvation. And he, in verses 16 to 29, he gives detailed instructions regarding the leaders of Canaan, the leaders of this promised land. This, this section is quite very similar to Numbers chapter 1. Everything that takes place to the first generation tends to be repeated in the second half of Numbers. This happens to the second generation as well. And in the first generation, Numbers chapter 1, God appointed certain leaders over the different tribes of Israel. Here it seems to be that he does the same thing. He points these certain leaders over these various tribes of Israel in regards, to, uh, in regards to dividing the land of Canaan. We read verse 16 and 29. We'll just read the whole thing. Numbers 16, Numbers 34, verse 16 and 29. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, These are the names of the men who shall apportion the land to you for inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one leader of every tribe to apportion the land for inheritance. These are the names of the men of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Of the tribe of the sons of Simeon, Samuel, the son of Amihud. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad, the son of Kislan. Of the tribe of the sons of Dan, a leader, Buki, the son of Jogli. The sons of Joseph, of the tribe of the sons of Manasseh, a leader, Haniel, the son of Ephod. Of the tribe of the sons of Ephraim, a leader, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan. Of the tribe of the sons of Zebulun, a leader, Elizaphan, the son of Parnak. Of the tribe of the sons of Issachar, a leader, Paltiel, the son of Azan. Of the tribe of the sons of Asher, a leader, Ahihud, the son of Shalomai. Of the tribe of the sons of Naphtali, a leader, Pedahel, 
the son of Amihud. These are those whom the Lord commanded to apportion the inheritance of the sons of Israel in the land of Canaan. So, the dividing and the apportioning of the land was, was not going to be a free-for-all. It's not going to be like an Oklahoma Sooners kind of thing. You know, just, you just, just, you know, just, just get in whenever you can. Just put your, down, your roots down and claim it for your own. You know, name and claim it. You know? It wasn't going to be that. It wasn't going to be a free-for-all. It was going to be an, an orderly division of the land. God has got to order. So God establishes a plan, in a sense, how to divide the land. He doesn't say, well, let's, uh, let's just kind of, you know, everybody get to choose which one you want. God first begins by establishing leaders, leaders over the nation, leaders who would be responsible to help in dividing the land between the tribes, clans, and families. And uh, there's a briefly alluded here that this, the process would be involved casting lots. So there would be a, a, a kind of a randomness to it, but a really randomness under the sovereignty of God. But as far as who would go first, which tribe would come first, which tribe would, would get what land, we, we see that detailed elsewhere, but really not much is said here about the details, except that these leaders would be chosen to help in dividing the land between the tribes, clans, and families. Uh, the further division of these actual, the, the actual division of these lands would take place or be described in Joshua 15 and, and following. You can look there if you want. But the list of leaders here is, is reminiscent uh, back again, back to the list of leaders in verse, of chapter 1. That generation had died in the wilderness because of their sin. And now we find a new generation of leaders. At the head of these leaders would be, again, would be Eleazar and Joshua, a priest, a priestly leader and a political leader. Back in chapter 1, it was Moses and Aaron, if you recall, who were served in those roles. Now it would be Eleazar as the priest, the spiritual leader, and Joshua as the, the military leader, the political leader as well. Then there's a, a long list of all the various leaders. And kind of, it's just, there's a lot of repetition of the tribe, you know, then the name of someone, a leader. Repeated, there's repetition of a leader. He's a leader, a leader, a leader. And the, the son of somebody. It's interesting. If you compare these lists, and this is, the only, this is really the, one of the interesting observations, you think that this is the second generation. So perhaps the sons of those first generation leaders might be now the leaders of the tribes. But not a single one of those first-generation leaders, not and any of their sons, are now listed as leaders of the respective tribes. It, it doesn't get passed over in a sense like, oh, it didn't get inherited. Oh, my dad was leader in the first generation, so I get to be leader in the second generation. That's not what happens here. God chooses leaders of his own will and of his own plan. He, he does not uh, say, well, he does not, he's not a respecter of their, of their bloodlines or anything like that. He doesn't choose them because of their family. He sovereignly chooses those whom he wishes to lead his people. Of course, most recognizable in this list is Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who was the other spy along with Joshua, who had believed in the Lord. They had faith in God's ability to give them the land. And so these other leaders would have likely been leaders like Joshua and like Caleb, men of faith who trusted God to give them the land. They are commanded, uh, after being chosen, they are commanded to apportion the inheritance of the sons of Israel. But if you, as we look at it, the very little detail is given as to how. And so there's not much more to really cross-reference. These names are not, <laughs> very, uh, are not really mentioned too much anywhere else. But what does this list teach us? And, and I thought about it in a very devotional way uh, of these, these lists of leaders uh, it's not explicitly stated here. Let me make that clear. But I believe we see illustrated here some principles about leadership in church or among in God's people. It teaches about how God leads and, we, and God, how God chooses leaders. The first thing we observe, and I've already mentioned, is that God doesn't choose leaders of his people, whether it's Israel as a nation, whether it's the church of Jesus Christ today, based on bloodlines or connections. He doesn't choose people based on bloodlines or connections. You know, in our political world, you, people are chosen because of their connections, because they got families. You know, it's like, how, you know, uh, the, because they have their sons or somebody, you know, even in our, just, we don't have to go to our federal level, just stay in our city level. You know, how many of our politicians are, are you know, are from the same family, same certain families, 
because they have connections, they have influence, they have a, they have a reach, a connection with community, and there's practical there's practicalness to that. It's not that it's necessarily wrong. We understand how that works, and the more people they know, the more people they can influence. And we might think that that's that's how you should choose leaders, but that's not how God chooses leaders. He doesn't choose you because you know people. You'll need to know one person. That's Him. I know many churches. You know, if you got to go to an old enough church where a pastor gets old and raises the family there, they love their pastor so much that when he retires, they, they inevitably hire his son to be their next pastor. You know, you've been to church like that? And that's not necessarily wrong. Not necessarily wrong if God's, that's what God calls them. But God doesn't choose someone just because he's the son of the former pastor to be the next leader. A church isn't supposed to choose someone because of who they're related to or who they know. Maybe they know a lot of people. This, this pastor knows a lot of people. Uh, yeah, man, he, maybe he'll, they'll help us connect with many other different people. No, that's, that's not how God chooses his shepherds. We can trust God to gift and call those men whom he desires to lead his church. And what's more, leadership is not chosen by the people, right? It's because it's chosen. We're, we're not like a Baptist church that, that gets to vote. You know, let's all vote and say, uh, yeah, I want that pastor uh, or I don't want that pastor. Leadership is chosen by God. And what we do is we look to our existing elders and pastors of this church to recognize those men whom God has gifted and called to serve as elders. In fact, we're having one of those meetings uh, pretty soon to reflect, review our elders in training, as well as to consider new potential elders in training. God chooses men, as we see in the scriptures, men of faith, men of godly character, and men of skillful ability. Those are the kinds of leaders he chooses to lead his church. Secondly, I actually wrote it down for you. God doesn't choose leaders based on bloodlines or connections. But secondly, another devotional thought from this text is that God entrusts the decision-making of his people to his chosen leaders. Here we see that God just gives them a big picture, the big command, a portion of the land, divide the land. Uh, Do it by lot, but he doesn't tell them when, how, where to do it. They decide that part. A lot of things in church, we, you know, they tell us, God tells us to worship. We tell you 8 a.m. and 11.15 a.m., okay, or 9.30 a.m. That's not in the scriptures, but God gives the leadership of this church to make those decisions. God is the one who chooses leaders to be the elders, pastors of a church, and he provides for them many, many big picture commands, many big, many uh, uh, overall principles, but he gives them liberty how they go about it. And the Bible gives us these many leadership principles, but it doesn't give us the details of leadership policy. But leaders, but churches, as we grow, inevitably we have policies. You know, like them or not, they, we have policies. Uh, it's every larger church has them, so that we might be treat one another fairly and treat each other equitably and so that people are not mistreated or or, um, shown preference but therefore because there are all these kind of uh, these detailed decisions that the leaders are to make we must we must as a church grow to trust in their leadership decisions and there will be times that we are going to disagree with our leaders just just think about our political leaders how many times we disagree with them we do the same thing even in church, church leaders. I know when I was a young man, I, I was one of those guys, oh man, I don't agree with that leader. I don't agree with that leader, that church, that decision. I think it should be this, I think it's that. But there is something that we learn as when we remember that God is the one who appoints these leaders, that we need to, as those who are under the authority of those leaders, to trust in their decisions, to trust them in those decisions that they make unless they're sinning in their decision. If it's not a sin issue, then we can need to trust them to lead. Why? Not because they're necessarily the greatest leaders of all. They're not. We're all imperfect people, men that make mistakes. But we trust our leaders because we trust God who put them over us in our body. And God has entrusted the decisions to them to make. 
Well, thirdly, the third devotion observation from this text is that God raises up new leaders for every generation. God raises up new leaders. He does. And this is a, we, as Essa Bible, we're really blessed to be a multi-generational church. After 60-some plus years, we are a multi-generational church. <clears throat> and there are many leaders here in the church, many of you ministry leaders, uh, as have been, have been leaders of ministries for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know? That's a lot of experience. We're really richly blessed as a church. We are. We can't deny that. And if you're young, we should, we should really rejoice that we have. And, oh, well, if you're young and you're here, you probably appreciate that. Otherwise, you'd go find a young church plant, find, find a church where there's just a bunch of 20-year-olds that you can hang out with. But there's some value in having older saints with the experience that they have. But at the same time, my caution, my word of wisdom for us is, as uh, older leaders, and I am among the older ones, is that we must learn to share and pass the mantle of leadership to the next generation. Can't hold it on. Uh, the most, the, one of the worst things we say is that, you know, if I pass it on, that person's not going to do it as well as I did it. You know, of course they're not. But they're not going to learn to do it any better if you don't let them have a chance to do it. We got to let them learn from their mistakes just as we did. Especially, and let them make those mistakes while we're still around. So we can help them to pick up the pieces when they make their mistakes. That's what we do with our kids, right? Should be... We should be letting, passing that mantle on. A church will not be healthy if all our leaders, can you imagine, are 70 years old. Or worse, all our leaders are 30 years old. We're blessed to have leaders that are 70 to 30 and every age in between. I mean, I'm not 30, 40, probably closer. But 30 and many of our ministry leaders are, are in their 30s and somewhere in their 20s. Wow. Our differing generations sometimes are... are reasons for conflict, right? We do things differently. You know, man, those kids, all they do is they text me all the time. I don't like those texts. You know, can't you just email me? Can't you send me a note, a little nice postcard or something like that? I don't know. We all have differing generational kind of values. And that sometimes comes, those become a source of conflict. But again, unless it is sin, we have to learn, evaluate. Our, as if it's not a sin issue, we must learn to from our different perspectives, our different attitudes, different experiences, then we can trust that all, if we're, as fellow leaders, we're going to be guided by the truths of God in his word. So God, you know, that's what as a Bible is, you know, we should be doing. Uh, and uh, I believe we are doing, we're striving to do, to raise something. But God is the one who reads, ultimately leads them. We can have per- plans and, and programs to train up new leaders, but ultimately, we must not forget that God is the one who chooses the leaders of his church. God ordains the leaders. We need to recognize who are the leaders that God is raising up in this church. With all this said, I'll just remind you again that there are no such thing as perfect leaders. Only Jesus is perfect, okay? We only have a perfect God, a perfect Lord. Nevertheless, God chooses imperfect men and women to lead his people. And, there, and, we, and we will make mistakes. We all do. And, but nevertheless, as God's people, we must trust. We must learn to trust in their leadership because we're trusting in God. Well, we conclude, wrap it up. On the plains of Moab, the second generation of Israel are given instructions regarding the promised land. They're told the borders of the land, and they're told the leaders who would help them in apportioning the land. The detail with which God goes into destruction reminds God's people that this land is the very land that was promised to their fathers. God affirms that the land of Canaan is their inheritance. It's their possession. God is not like, and and the details remind us that God is not like soothsayers, like fortune tellers that speak in generalities. Oh, you know, know, I see in your future that you're going to meet someone on a a street, in a city. Okay, that can happen to anybody. God tells us the very details because God is in control of the details. He's in control of the specifics. And that's what he promises. He gives them the specific descriptions of the land, specific leaders to lead them. And because God is in, in, is, in the, is, in, 
is involved in the whole process, sovereign in control, and he brings it all to pass because he is God. And for us today, this passage encourages God's people to trust in his faithfulness to fulfill his promise, all his promise, but especially the promise of eternal life, that he will lead us through this pilgrim journey here on earth until he brings us home with him. Leave you with three questions just for our um, for our discussion groups that we have, what assures you that God will keep his promise to save you? I suggested to you some. Maybe there's something else that you may share with, among one another. What assures you? What gives you uh, assurance that God will keep his promise to save you? And then secondly, how do the details of God's promises encourage you to trust in him? God, when he speaks in promises, he, he speaks in such details. Think about the details that God speaks, and how does that encourage you in your trust in him? And then thirdly, how can you trust God more in regards to the, the leaders that he has placed among you? Uh, and, uh, and that's just a, that's something that we can all grow in and hopefully be challenged in. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your faithfulness in making and giving, making the promise to, of a land to your people Israel. And thank you, Lord, that you are, have been faithful. You are faithful to keep your promise to them, allowing them to possess the land of Canaan and then under Solomon, to expand it even. And though that land has been, for the, the, the full extent of the land has been lost, we thank you that even not too long ago, you brought Israel back to the land after nearly 1,500 years out of the land. And God, we know that what you promise, you have the power and ability to bring to pass. And not only that, you are faithful to bring your word to pass. As we've seen, you've brought it to pass in your son, Jesus Christ, our salvation. And Lord, we know that you will bring about the fulfillment of the promise of a land to Abraham and his descendants one day. When Christ returns, and we pray that, Lord, that Christ will return soon. We pray that all the the covenants that you have made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even the new covenant, Lord, would all be completely fulfilled in its totality when Jesus Christ returns. We thank you, Lord, that now we can experience the, the, the hope of eternal life through faith in Jesus. Thank you for the, the promise that you, you have given to us of a, of a new heart and your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that your word reveals this all to us. And by faith, we believe what your word has said. But a faith not blind, a faith strengthened because you have shown us consistently in your word that you keep your promises. And so, Lord, with that, we are sure that you will keep all of them. And most importantly of all, you've kept those promises regarding Jesus. Thank you for your son. And thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you give to us, to our faith. We pray that we will continue to trust you. And even as Israel was challenged to trust you in, the prom- in, in entering and conquering the promised land, so we pray that you would help us to trust you in the days ahead as we sojourn here on earth until you call us home. Father, we look forward to that day. We pray that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.